Shalom! Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Christchurch Jerusalem, to our evening Bible study, where we are studying the Epistle to the Galatians, um, which we think is Paul's first letter and uh, and one of his most, I guess, autobiographical, where he gives the most information and uh, presents um, a problem which may still be inherent within our community. Let's study, wrestle, and see what the Holy Spirit has to teach us with this, with this, uh, with this epistle. We are still in chapter 1. To acknowledge the presence of the Lord amongst us, and hopefully with you too, whoever is listening, Aaron, would you lead us in prayer? Our Father, our King, we thank you for this day, this evening, this night, this morning, whatever time it is when people are participating and listening. Father, we give you thanks for every day that is a gift. Father, be with us as we study your word. May it be fruitful for our lives and practical. Father, may we understand what it is that you are saying to us today through your word and through your spirit. And may we have ears to hear eyes to see and mouths to speak what it is you're saying to us today through your word and through your spirit. Amen. Amen. And is our tradition, we have a small summary from last week's discussion, which, thanks be to God, was not interrupted um, by our friends in Hamas. And so this is a, a summary from Galatians 1, verses 3 to 10. Having established himself as an apostle... In the opening sentence, Paul follows the pattern of greeting he has learned from his teacher Gamaliel as the salutation to the communities in Galatia. Grace and peace, or in Hebrew, chesed v'shalom. Paul invokes God the Father and Messiah Jesus as attributions for the grace and the peace. Paul does not invoke a Trinitarian formula and admits mention of the Holy Spirit. Why does he do this? So we discussed that Paul rarely mentions all three participants of the Godhead in a single sentence. I did locate one in 2 Corinthians, 3, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 13, which is actually the last verse in the epistle, which is actually the final sentence of the second epistle of Corinthians. I looked for textual variants. That is, I was looking to see if there were early manuscripts that didn't have it and then it would have been a postscript, but I couldn't find one. Thus, it appears to be an exception to the rule. Paul's typical greeting is to invoke the Father and the Messiah. We discussed that one of the Holy Spirit's roles as a permanent gift from God is to glorify and honor the Father and the Son and not seek attention and glory for himself. Paul includes in the salutation an important aspect of the good news. Jesus, the Messiah, gave himself for our sins. The Gospel of John says that God so loved the world that he gave his son. Many passages reflect on the notion that Jesus was delivered over to death, handed over to the Romans, etc. Here, Paul notes that Jesus also gave of himself willingly. Jesus had indicated such in his discussion with the Pharisees, where he tells them plainly that no one takes my life, I lay it down willingly. That's in John 10, 18. Paul also says that part of the redemption story is that we were rescued from this present evil age. 
What is the present evil age? Now we rescued from it are good topics for discussion. Paul appears to indicate that we are not delivered from the presence of the evil age, rather from the power of the evil age, for both us and the evil age still seem to be here. History also informs us that we are not protected from suffering and persecution from the evil age. All of this was according to the will of God the Father. As we have seen in the Pia Kerbot, which we study on Mondays, there has been um, a long-standing uh, tension between predestination and free will in Jewish theology. All things are in the hands of heaven except the fear of heaven is a Mishnah that reflects that tension. Paul is not advocating one way or the other. Here he simply notes that the willingness of Jesus to give himself freely, the rescue and the redemption from the power of this age, are part of the divine will of God. Divine sovereignty and the willingness of Jesus can and do coexist. The opening salutation, now it's verses 1 to 5, conclude with an amen. The word amen has a variety of meanings and liturgical function in the late Second Temple period Judaism, of which the New Testament is produced. It derives from the verb to believe or to trust. Amen has been described as an anagram in Shabbat, Shabbat, Tractate Shabbat 122 side B, for Adonai Melech Naaman, God the King is faithful. Yozi ben Hanania says Amen implies an oath, an acceptance of words, and is a confirmation. Liturgically, one of its functions is to invoke a verbal repetition of what you have been just read. So somebody reads something out to you and says Amen, and everyone says Amen, and then repeats what they just heard as a way of reinforcing uh, and learning. So all of that is put in. And that's probably why it's there in verse 5. Paul now launches into his critique of the Galatian community. Paul is amazed at how quickly people are deviating or deserting to a different gospel. Paul was shocked, not that people would fall away, but that they would fall away so quickly to another gospel. How many gospels are there? Well, for Paul, there is really only one. All others are false, and as he says it, no gospel at all. Paul places a divine cheren, a curse from God, if you will, on anyone or anything, including angels or divine beings, should they teach a different gospel. In biblical literature, both Hebrew Bible and in pseudepigraphic material, uh, they speak of angels presenting the word of heaven to humans. It apparently was not beyond Paul's imagination that even an angelic figure could distort God's word as it had happened in the past with Satan and the fallen angels. Note that God says that they are turning away and deserting him. Some translations say the one. They are leaving the person of Jesus. The good news is encapsulated in the work and person of Jesus the Messiah. The gospel is not an esoteric thought. It is not a warm, fuzzy feeling, and it is not a decision of the majority. The Galatians are turning away from the person of Jesus the Messiah towards something else. And this has Paul very riled. He says this other gospel is illegitimate, it's a distortion, it's confusing, and it's not real. Those that teach such things are under God's curse, or as he says it, anathema.
Now, I haven't heard a preacher say this kind of thing from the pulpit for quite some time now. To do so would place the preachers at risk of most likely losing his job. The present evil age appears to still be with us. May the Lord deliver us from its power. Amen. And so with that uh, little salutation and the opening bit from Paul, we begin. Oh, well, we'll, we'll finish the chapter. We'll continue with the chapter from verse 11. And I'm reading, for those that um, uh, need to know, from an ESV, the English Standard Version. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of, of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So that's our portion that we'll wrestle with uh, tonight. So on a literal reading, a little bit more um, autobiography there from Paul, which we don't have in um, many of the other uh, books. What stands out? What jumps out? Or is there anything that always jumps out every single time you notice it? This is the literal Peshat uh, analysis. Well, how about the three years he spent in Arabia? There you go. <clears throat> that has, um, I have to say that every time I read this, I always get stuck with, wow, uh, three years in Arabia? Oh, my goodness. Because that's actually not recorded in, in Acts. It's just, it just appears here. If you didn't have this piece of information from Galatians, it would, you would never suspect that this actually happened. This is it. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a one-off line. doesn't say very much, but it tells us he went to Arabia. So what's in Arabia, guys? It actually, just a, an aside here, Aaron, I'm not answering your question directly, but it reminds me of a, a thing I'm reading. I just got Joel C. Rosenberg's book called Epicenter, which is like a, you know, a study, of, but it's like 10 years old. But in it, he talks about how like a lot of people like Iraq and like some of those 
those countries, um, they come to Christ through visions, not through, you know, mouth-to-mouth evangelism by other people or somebody sharing their faith with them. Yep. And they often come. And it's so interesting because this one guy came to this guy's church, this pastor there locally, and said that, oh, he'd been receiving teaching from Jesus for two hours every day for a year, and then he felt like he should come and find some believers. And it was just so interesting to see such a different perspective. Like, we don't hear about that or see that here in North America at all. Like, everyone's taught, you know, and you go and teach your neighbor about Christ. But there, like, it's on pain of death or, you know, torture or arrest or that kind of thing, right? Because it's not accepted in Muslim country. So it's just interesting that God spoke to them, and it reminds me of this so much that, you know, Jesus is teaching people spiritually, like, themselves directly. So Paul did the same thing, it sounds like, eh? He was guided directly, maybe? Well, I thought it's, it, that's what he says. He says exactly that he's received this from, from Jesus himself. He goes to Mount Sinai in Arabia, doesn't he? Well, he, he doesn't say that, but that's what I would assume, because that was the big mountain that's in Arabia. And, um, and later on, when he does his allegory of Hagar and, and Sarah, he also makes them mountains, which is which is also very interesting. So while it doesn't say, hey, I went to, you know, the mountain of God and sort of sat on it and God came down again and I, I'm like, you know, had a good experience like Moses, it can be implied that way. Gavin, it's the fact that he mentions that he saw Peter and James, but, at, but he actually states that he didn't see the others. Is there anything in that? Yeah, a lot of commentaries really try and figure out, they, they play around with Acts and the number of times he visits Jerusalem. They're trying to timeline which visit is he talking about. And because obviously if he has, if, he, if one of the visits is he goes in and he has the big council of Acts 15, well, he's seen a lot more people than just Peter and James. But there, there it's it, uh, here he's, he, he's saying, um, well, the first time I went was, was kind of... Um, very quiet, very subtle, uh, don't want to alarm anybody, don't want to cause any trouble. Uh, but he does it in connection, in specifically as a, as a self-revelation, to describe where his gospel comes from. Well, not his gospel, the gospel comes from. I find it quite interesting that Paul says that um, in verse 16, to reveal his son to me that am I preaching among the heathen, he knew that that was his calling, was yeah. for the Gentiles. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and a really dedicated, uh, basically online to become a rabbi. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, calling. In, in, in the modern day, what would it be likened to? Um, someone says, you know, I, I really don't want to go to Africa. I, I don't like Africa. I hate it. I really want to go to Hawaii. And then someone comes up and says, the Lord's calling you to Nigeria. And uh, Oh my gosh! What do I want to go there for? <laughs> I've, I've been practicing my my surfing, but I don't now. I'm now I'm in Africa. So yeah, it, it seems like he was prepared for something different, but, but in, in truth, he was being prepared perfectly for the Gentiles. I think I think he really understood the message of God, because God gave Torah to Israelis to bless other nations through them, but unfortunately. Uh, early Israelis uh, didn't understand the message that much and they kept the Torah for themselves. But Rabbi Shaul understood it and that's why he went to the Gentiles, you know. But he always visited the synagogues first, then the Gentiles, I think. And so does Rabbi Mordecai. 
Yeah. But he's a great rabbi, you know. I can I cannot I cannot put my name with him. Well, I try. He created a good example to those who understood and understand. So when my uh, Mordecai and I were uh, doing our discipleship in Jerusalem in the early early months, uh, Mordecai chose as his um, face page on his um, cell phone Saint Stephen. Uh, when when he first showed me that, I was like, "No, gosh, no way! The guy dies like in his first mission call. Stop it!" <laughs> but somebody has a bit of a longer career. <laughs> but anyway, that was easy. good on you, Stephen. All right, <clears throat> so let's have a look uh, in depth at the text, verse eleven. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. All right. So. And verse 12 is very similar. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. All right. So why do you think he has to say these, <coughs> these verses? Uh, I think it's because his apostleship, is some t- somehow his authority has been called into question. We don't know who by, but uh, he's been there. And he's um, shared the gospel. He has planted some churches. They know him. They know what he's teaching. But somebody else now has come along and uh, questioned his authority. Mm-hmm. And, and if so, how would they do it, do you think? Obviously, we're speaking from silence, but what do you think? Well, it's a good point that he's, you know, they, they were justified at being scared of him. Like you guys mentioned, the other the other study is a good point that they're all probably petrified of the guy. And maybe it's a ploy to get them, you know, because he's historically been killing people. And now he's right. Preaching the well, gospel. That he wants the, the Galatians, to- these communities don't know that these communities um, are the ones that uh, were introduced to him in his mission trip from Antioch. Right. And uh, he was he was literally a, a shaliach. The community, well, the Holy Spirit did it in, in Acts, but the community did it as well. They sent he and Barnabas out, and uh, they, they spread the faith amongst the people and, um, and taught. But somebody else has come along and, uh, and thrown into question his, uh, his authority. So what do you think might be their argument? Do you, do you think it's possible that because his um, message seems so radically different to what the other apostles were doing. Even though Paul had a a revelation of Pentecost to the Gentiles, it says here, even the disciples says that Paul's gospel is hard to understand and it is twisted by many. Yeah, could be. We could assume that the argument would be that the, the other apostles received their gospel directly from Jesus and Paul didn't, so they're more authoritative. Okay, that could be one. Yes, that could be one. They've questioned his authority because he never was one of the inner, inner uh, group. Yeah, okay, that's an interesting argument. And Paul has to and has started that right at the beginning. No, I am an apostle. Yeah. Well, he also emphasizes, though, that he received the revelation directly from Jesus Christ. Correct. In essence, saying, I received uh, my commission and my message from Jesus just like they did. Yep. And I, I found it interesting, though I am not a Greek scholar, but I really hope you confirm this with me because I had to look it up, is that uh, when he says 
uh, in verse 11, the gospel that was preached by me, that's in um, passive. Is that true, Mario? Yes. It's a yeah. passive aorist. Passive aorist, thank you. What that, what, that, what that means is it's not my gospel. It's not the gospel of Paul. I am preaching the gospel that's been given to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right on. Right. It's like because, you know, you don't sort of say, oh, it's, it's Paul's gospel. No, Paul himself is saying, I am preaching the gospel that has been given to me. And, and who did I get it from? Dun, 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 dun. I didn't get it from Peter. I didn't get it from James. Okay. I didn't get it from the other, the big, the, the, all the big guys you've heard. He, he gives this incredible thing. He says, I have received it through um, revelation, which is an interesting word, of course, in Greek. Um, apocalypsis um, doesn't always sound like, oh my gosh, you had an apocalypse with Jesus and, uh, and, and now you're telling everybody and everyone's happy. But apocalypse doesn't quite mean in English what it means in Greek, I guess. <laughs> Does that make sense? It means uncovering. Correct. Yes, the uncovering. And uh, so the and apocalypse is different as um, for those uh, we've been studying Revelation at, uh, at, at Christ Church with a, in our men's Bible study. And um, one of the things we've been challenged on is that prophecy is not the same as an apocalypse. Right? Uh, one, a prophecy can be changed. What do you mean by that, Aaron? I hear you ask. It's called repentance. Okay? So a prophet comes and says, the Babylonians are coming if you don't repent, which means what? If you repent, they don't come. But a, but a revelation is unchangeable. This is just what's going to happen, people. It doesn't matter what you do. You don't change this. There's a slight difference. And, uh, and that, it, it's, it's, it's subtle. It's incredibly subtle because there's prophecy inside an apocalypse. But... But the revelation of Jesus is not something that you change. Okay, okay. Uh, Rocky, you have a hand raised? I was just looking in uh, John 5.31, and Yeshua himself says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Okay, yep. So it has to, there you go. It has to be um, through another, yes? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, what I'm saying is that Paul is testifying about himself. No, it's a, it, that's the, the Greek is, is passive. It's not from him. It's being given to him. That's the reason why it's in passive aorist and why it's written in Greek. According to him. Yep, the gospel that was preached by me, it's in, it's a, the way it's written is in passive aorist. So it's not that he made it up. It's been something that he was, he was given, and the revelation comes from where? From the Messiah himself. Okay? Yeah, because I think, you know, of course, he was also taught at the feet of Gamaliel. So, you know, he wants to make sure that that chain of, of, of tradition and then ultimately leading to Yeshua himself. Right. So we, interest, we stuck with an interesting, interesting little, um, not conundrum, and it's, not, it's just something to ponder. Revelation occurs post-resurrection. Be careful where you go with this, Aaron. <laughs> you know, don't want to start any new religions. Right? 
This is Paul saying that I have communicated with the Messiah post-resurrection. I have received the gospel not from man post-resurrection. What other events in the New Testament occur or teaching from the Messiah occur post-resurrection? Hopefully you all remember our Acts study. How long does Jesus stay on the planet post-resurrection? 40. 40 right. What does he do on that, on that, during that time? Holy Spirit. Acts 1 verse 3. It says, he appeared to many over the period of 40 days and taught. Right, so you know it's it's after the resurrection, and Jesus is still teaching. Right, there was obviously something really amazing. Jesus has to go. Well, it's all done. It's all finished. I'm alive now. So, chick chat away we go. Um, good luck. See you in a couple of thousand years. That's not quite what he says. You know, he sort he sort of says, "Okay, guys, let's talk about the kingdom of heaven. I've really got some things to talk to you about." And uh, and he does. And so we have to be careful when we balance the idea of um, how how much does Jesus reveal post-resurrection? Uh, because we've got some very interesting people wandering around on the planet and through history who have always who have come along and said, I have a new revelation from the Lord. Think, oh, my gosh, where did you get this idea from? Well, Paul had one, and Jesus continued to teach his disciples after the resurrection. So there is it's an interesting ten- tension there. Well, and doesn't the Holy Spirit do it too? Because the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. Right there, you go. Yes, and you have so you have those as both Sharon was saying, um, you have those revelation encounters, particularly in the Middle Eastern world, of people who have been being revealed, and uh, the Holy Spirit does do that. Um, that that isn't the only way He operates, and those of us who manage to get through the Book of Acts study. We certainly understood that the Holy Spirit cannot be put in a box. He operates in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different uh, Aaron, different people. Whoa, Aaron, because right there, we could stop right there, because this is not unusual, because historically he's done this all the time too. So he revealed himself in dreams and visions throughout the Old Testament as well. So it's not right. an unusual way for him to communicate. But see, in my in this sort of you know non-open kind of, Protestant-y type worldview here in North America, it was just really cool to read this epicenter story of, you know, verbal testimonies in this century of people coming to Christ. And so then my husband was saying that, yeah, he'd gotten the Clippers, seen something that said that 85% of, you know, people in Arab lands, or I don't know if it was an exact country, but they come to Christ through, you know, direct encounters with God. I I have no idea how high it is or what the percentage. I know some people personally who have done it. And so does a changed life proceed from it? Like you see that clearly Paul's life has changed completely. So clearly something happened, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, even if, if, even if like Rafi, if if he's testifying about it himself, I guess he's just trying to clarify, like, you know, honestly, I saw and met Jesus Christ myself. So maybe it's very popular depending on where you're at. Like, it's just, I don't know. There's not a lot in North America that I know of. I guess it's just not personal knowledge that they, they come to Christ through different means. So it's just really incredible. I was just really amazed. Sure. With all the continued revelation after 2,000 years, what's your check and balance? And I think it goes all the way back into the way the Greek is in this sentence, the gospel that was preached by me, okay? Passive aorist. It is not my gospel. It's the gospel that was preached by me. It's been the same one. It hasn't changed. And so some people who come and they through by the Holy Spirit or through their apostleship say, I'm going to 
Now I'm slightly changing the gospel. So wait, wait a second. That's an alarm bell to me. That's where I'm not 100% sure we can uh, go along with that. But when you see the fruit that people are uh, preaching the gospel, but not the one they invented, the one that that was revealed to them, the one that has been the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. The good news, the, yeah, the, the Messiah that has not changed. Okay. So I, um, not being a Greek scholar, but I did enjoy discovering that, that, that passive uh, way of writing. Like, oh, that's interesting that Paul would, would say it that way. Okay. Uh, where are we up to? Okay, so 13. Uh, for, I have, for you have heard, um, so uh, I mean, this, this is Paul talking to people who know him, now, some of them at least know him, right, because he's the one that, that, that founded these communities. There's, there's a personal uh, relationship here. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. This, this next section is a, an incredible amount of self-disclosure that Paul does not do in any other book. He really pours out um, some information about himself. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then we get that interesting expression, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, and then I returned to Damascus. All right. So Paul has um, uh, probably shared some of these stories with them before, you can just imagine that, uh, you know, he probably as part of his personal testimony, you know, stood up in the community and said, let me tell you about myself and what I used to do and now what I'm doing, just so you're all clear. And uh, he reminds them that he has heard as his former life okay, in Judaism and how he uh, persecuted the church of God violently and he tried uh, to destroy it. Okay, so he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. So extremely zealous was he for the traditions of, um, his, of the fathers. So some commentaries say that now Paul is renouncing his heritage. Some do not. What do you guys think? No, absolutely not. Okay. Now, why would you say that? Because many times in the ministry of Paul, he says he, he, for the Jews, he, he remains Jewish. And for the Gentiles, he, he remains whatever they need in order to know Christ. And anyway, Christ is, is the, the Jewish Messiah in the Old Testament. There's, there's no new religion. Correct. Yeah. Although for some of the people that live around here, you'd be um, hard pressed to, to have them accept that. Uh, I agree. I don't think Paul is renouncing his heritage, but what is he doing? He's giving Christ precedence over the traditions of his parents and uh, forefathers. Absolutely, he's doing that, yes. Because in, in, in other books, he's going to say, 
I am a Pharisee. And he's going to say it in present tense. He's like, what? I just thought we kind of got rid of that last before, but he didn't, you know. Because uh, I am a Hebrew. I am a, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, here he is doing something else, though. He is saying, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. So what does he mean by in Judaism? What's the Greek, Aria? Judaismo. It's Judaism. Yeah. He's referring to the whole system that we know well from the Second Temple period, and uh, a lot of it is still around us now. Yeah. It, it, it is associated heavily forth with the traditions of the forefathers, as it's repeatedly stated in the New Testament, also by Jesus. Right. Because he says he was extremely zealous, right? Uh, zelotai, I think the, the word was, um, that I was for the traditions of my fathers. So if someone says, like, zealous for the traditions of the fathers, is there another uh, passage that springs to mind when someone says we're zealous for the traditions? In Romans, okay. Paul says they're zealous without knowledge. Okay, zealous for knowledge. Yeah, is that without right? Without knowledge, yeah. Zealous he without says, knowledge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there any time where zealousness is actually said in a positive sense? Oh, the one guy who stuck a spear through somebody who went into the temple. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pinchas, yeah. <laughs> yes, he ended up getting his own covenant. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. Really, really mad at yeah. um, Acts 21.20. Thank you very much, Aaron. Yes. Uh, Read from the ESV. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Yes. And they say it in a positive way. Okay. What is Paul saying in a negative way? Zealous for? Traditions. Of? Men. Yeah. He doesn't say, I was zealous for the Torah. Right, which is what you get in Acts 21. He says, oh, zealous for traditions. Right? He's not distancing himself from, like, uh, the, uh, his, his heritage as being Jewish or distancing himself from the Torah, you know, like which is what many people say, like, oh, throw, throw off the Torah and that's it. You end up eating bacon and ran around as a Gentile. He's distancing himself from the righteous... Pursuit of righteousness from the works of the law. Uh, but more specifically, Aaron. The law. Does that make sense? It's like, I don't, I, don't, I don't say, dear Lord, I have not committed, you know, um, embezzlement. I have not stolen. So therefore, you have to uh, give me righteousness. No, my righteousness comes from the Messiah. But I still can't steal my boss's money. In verse 13, Aaron, I think he's saying that he, he's, he's distancing himself from him persecuting the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. So he was killing Christians, but then Andrew's saying Jews. So they were, what do you call, like, what are you guys saying? Like Jewish converts to Christendom? What? Like he's saying the <laughs> verse 13. Yeah, they, they don't convert. So that, yeah. Yeah. So you guys are saying they don't convert to Christians. So. So these guys are not Christians, you're saying, Paul? Like, I mean, like, okay. Peter, well, James, the, the, the and all these guys? Nomenclature gets very confusing. Try not to take the modern-day understanding of the word Christian and superimpose it on the past. No, no, it's in the scripture. So, Paul Christian at Antioch. So then 
they became kind of a labeled group at that point that were following the way that were following. Not universal. Way. It's not. It's not. It, the the only time it's used there is in is in um, uh, is in Acts. They don't call it that in any other any other text, okay, even well, in Revelation. By the way, if okay, you so would if you were translating the word Christian into Hebrew, what would it come out as? I have no idea. I don't speak Hebrew. Mishim, right? Nachon, Mishim, Messianic. That's it. Yeah, that's all they are. And so, what do you call Jewish believers in Israel today? Mishim. Mishim. Same thing. Believers of Messiah. Believers of the Messiah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't try and overcomplicate it at all, Sharon. If you can, just leave it at that. Believers in the Messiah. Some of them, well, actually, all the ones that that Paul was mostly persecuting were Jews. He was not locking up Gentiles. Yeah. Okay. Those would have been Roman citizens. He would have had no power to do that. Yeah. It's like Mordecai. He he's a believer. He didn't leave his faith. He didn't convert to Christianity. He's still like he says. I'm still the same. I'm a Jew. I still follow the, you know, the feasts and all of the, the all of the, the things that have been commanded to us. So he just says he's just found the real Messiah. So it's not right. that he converted to another religion he's actually he's 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 brought the depth of the messiah uh through the prophecies and so and also paul, paul says the same thing in acts 23 6 he says brother and i'm a pharisee he doesn't say i was a pharisee, oh, or, yeah. a pharisee. he says i'm a pharisee like after all those things have happened to him he still says i'm a pharisee you know okay. Yeah. So in, in verse 13, you guys, what is the church of God? Like, what is that area? Like, what is, anyone, is that who believes, anyone who believes in the Messiah? It's, it's Christ. That's right. Jew, and Gentile. Jew and Gentile. Yeah, yeah Jew and Gentile. It, it makes no difference. As long as you believe in Messiah, then you're born into another kingdom. Yeah, but like the, if I say, if I say that I, I become a Christian, I, I don't, it, it doesn't mean I stop being a Canadian, for example. Like, I, I don't get the issue. Probably because the way you first said it was an identity that was un-Jewish. How's that? Can I? Probably didn't mean to do it that way. Uh, if I don't, we, I know 100% you didn't mean to do it that way. I don't know what you mean. That's okay. Go ahead, Aaron. Yes, yeah, so some of it is because there is the meaning of the word here in Galatians, which is great and fine. And then you also have 2,000 years of church history and a whole lot of baggage that comes with a lot of terms. Yeah. For instance, uh, historically, particularly in the medieval church, if a Jewish person became a Christian converted to Christianity, they had to take vows to give up everything that made them Jewish. So those kinds of words become problematic in the sense of uh, the baggage that comes with them. Okay, I feel you. Okay. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we have here in Israel and actually around the world when, when, the, when, when Jewish and Gentiles in, uh, intersect in the Kaila, in, in the Church of God. And it's like the Venn diagram. It's that sliver. <laughs> I love it because really it's, it is that sliver of understanding. Yes. Jew and Gentile and the Messiah is coming together. Uh, those two circles, when they come together, it's that sliver. So. And, and, and actually sometimes it takes people like Mordecai, the Jewish believers, to actually you know, stand up in that middle ground and say, guys, I understand what's going on here. I can see your side. I can see your side. Let me tell you where I'm standing in right now, what it looks like for me and how. So they end up with a very um, very powerful personal testimony. Of Obviously, Paul had one because it was convincing to the community and they became believers, which then 
somehow got got twisted. Okay, so um, so his former life, how he persecuted the Church of God or the uh, the Ecclesia. I think that would be the the word there, the Kehila, which what you would say in, in Hebrew, the assembly. And he tried to just to destroy it, um, which is an interesting thing because what did his rabbi initially do? For the new emerging Jesus movement, didn't he say that we should they should leave them alone because if the movement was not by God, it would fail? Correct. Well done. Yeah. I think Vita was there in our Acts study. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the in, in in the book of Acts, Gamliel stands up in the Sanhedrin. Okay, I don't know if he was the um, uh, chief of the Sanhedrin at the time, but he was there, and he and he gives a defense and says. Uh, guys, if this is from God, don't fight it. You'll lose. If it's not from God, it'll just pass out. Now, a good student should imitate his rabbi. So a good Paul should have listened, but he did the opposite. I think Paul used the Pharisee lobby a lot, so like such as Gamliel, you know. There was a Pharisee lobby at St. Hadrin, and Paul was smart enough to use it in in order to get rid of them sometimes, you know. <laughs> yeah, he did, and he got his letter. He convinced them to write them a letter, give him permission, yeah. and um, he went off to do his thing. But he admits we it, which is nice. We need to change his name from Paul the Apostle to Paul to Lobier. The Lobier. <laughs> and he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age among his people. So it gives um, a little bit of um, uh, biography that shows that he was reasonably intelligent, okay? He, he obviously spoke multiple languages. He was a better student, um, probably gifted in memory and uh, recitation and putting things together and, and working it all out. Might have even been a good speaker, not, not 100% sure. Um, but it does say he was zealous for the traditions of the fathers. So we can see that there was a, um, uh, his zealousness was, uh, is a great quality, but it was slightly misplaced. Okay, instead of being zealous for the Torah, he was zealous for the traditions. Not saying traditions are bad, just that sometimes they can be unhelpful, particularly if they become the only thing uh, you study or uh, listen to. Because we see in the uh, Acts twenty-one uh, twenty, I think that was the verse Aaron wasn't it, where um, they were zealous for the law, and that was said in a positive way. 15, verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. All right, so what have we got there, guys? We've got uh, a cross-reference, the idea of Jeremiah when he was called. Uh, Jeremiah, let me see here. I think it's chapter. It's Jeremiah 1.5. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, Jeremiah 1.5. What does Jeremiah 1.5 say out loud? It says uh, right here. Before I formed you in the womb, I set you apart. I consecrated mm -hmm. you and I put you to And then to be a prophet to, to teach to the nations. Yeah, for Jeremiah. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yep. Calling, calling Jeremiah, uh, comparing his own call to the nations. Yep. So you, got, you can see there's actually quite, there's a historical sacred background to this idea that God can actually, that your calling can be pre-existent to your birth. 
Now, that's not to say everybody's calling is pre-existent to the birth, but it's definitely to say that callings can be pre-existent to birth. Does that make sense? No. Right? <laughs> I mean, does it make sense? Like, it, it, you can't sort of say, okay, see, Jeremiah was called before he was born and Paul was called before he was born. Therefore, my conclusion is everyone's called before they're born. No, well, but based on Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Right, yes. We could say that. So I think right, everything. Yes. Thing. There, there's no such thing as Calvinist. It's it's Paulist. Or even like, yeah. <laughs> or even like, even um, like. That's it. Sharon starting a new religion. It's official. Okay. <laughs> Five minutes to eight Jerusalem time. Callism. Well, if I can get away with just making one tiny little comment, I think it's really funny in a way that we talk about Calvin because it's all the scripture, right? So it's like the scripture came way before him and he's like way late to the game because even Moses back Deuteronomy 7, right? For your holy people, your chosen, a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Like being chosen is Mosesist, <laughs> you know, not Calvinist. Like it's Mosesist yeah. or Paulist or Jesusist or, you know, it's not a new concept by any stretch of the imagination in whatever, what, the 1800s or something? Like, yeah. so, yeah. Okay, I'll be quiet. Thanks. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, but we've definitely got a um, the the elements of what you would see in in Judaism, particularly in the Dead Sea Scrolls, of predestination. That right. there exists um, the potential for God's initiative to actually occur before you're born. Okay? Same same thing with um, Jacob, right? When he says, "Israel, uh, for you, my servant um, Jacob, Israel, my servant Jacob, who I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend." So he says the same thing in Isaiah 41, the call of Jacob. Amen, sister, preach it. I think we could note here that Paul is not saying pre-existent, but he's saying before birth. He literally actually says, in my mother's womb, Correct. just like uh, Jeremiah. Correct. It suggests that God knows the DNA from the moment of conception to me, and he yeah. sees the suitability of that individual coming down the pike before they're born, but after conception. Mm -hmm. Thank and you. But, Aria, the only problem with that theory is Deuteronomy, no offense, but I mean, in Deuteronomy 7, isn't it? 7, yeah. You know, verse 8, so verse 6, you're chosen, chosen people, you know, special treasure. Verse 8, but so verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We might argue there maybe that there's no, it's not, it's God's love and his choice, not the object that does something to get it or earn it or merit it. Right? Oh, it's God's initiative. But what we're saying here is both in Jeremiah and Paul's case, he's looking at them while they're in utero, not preconception watching them as they're being formed. And as Arya says, he's noticed something about their DNA and said, this one, I call this one. And, uh, because Ephesians that. says it's before the foundation of the world. So it's even pre that, right? Uh, Ephesians speaks of a group. It does not speak of a, the individual identities within that group. God wanted a group of people and it was his purpose of creation that does not mean that he predetermined each and every individual identity of who would be in that group well i think so because verse see if you look at ephesians 1 verse 1 it's to the saints that are in ephesus 
It's and, a group of people, 17. Karen, is, is the point. The group. He says he chose us, all of us in Christ together. The election was in Christ. It was not arbitrarily made outside of Christ. It was in Christ. Yeah, I, agree, I agree with REA on this one. I think. Yeah, I totally uh, agree with that concept. But then it was two individuals, very specifically, like even Acts 17, that where he chose the times that we would live and where we would live. And I don't know. It's a thought. Yeah, I think that uh, REA has nailed it, that uh, the, the, the calling is in utero. And it's incorrect. Somehow God intimately knows our DNA, which is actually really quite nice to think of when you think about it. To the point in, in Ephesians, he further goes on afterwards to say that you were out of Christ, but now you are in after you believe. So it was a matter of their choice to put them in Christ. Yes. The, it's God initiates the calling. But you still have to answer the call. We respond. Yeah, absolutely. We yeah. respond. But, but again, Jesus there's, said, that, there's that beautiful tension between God's foreknowledge and predestination and the, the free will that I knew you and I, I knew that you were the one that needed to get this call, not somebody else. But you still have to, to uh, answer mm. answer the call. But, but there's a scripture that says those that um, God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And those that he predestined, he called. So there's a foreknowing, a predestined, and then a calling. And then those that he called, he glorified. All those are plural. He is speaking of a group. Yeah, and I'm not disagreeing. I mean, I, I, there's a tension between predestination. God knows everything from the end, and yet we have a choice. Correct. I mean, I, but the, I so the that. calling is there to to people, but the answering of the call is still up to us. And this is one of the things that I was that they hammered home with me when um, I was getting in my ordination process. Is you know the bishop sits down next to you uh, and looks at your face and says, "Aaron, you don't make the call; you answer the call." Yeah. Right? Right. You, know, don't, don't, you, you do not tell us what to do. We say the Holy it is good to us and the Holy Spirit. Will you accept the call? But don't tell us you're called. Does that make sense? Oh, I totally agree. Totally agree with that. And what you guys are saying, too, that it's a group call. But there's also the concept, like Jesus said, like, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Like, I think there's still that concept. So ultimately, we are called by God. And then we respond. Absolutely. So it feels like free will, but it, it feels like it's pretty, it's pretty sovereignly ordained. <laughs> sovereignly ordained free will. Well, that's right. You just... Keep going. We love callism. Callism sounds a lot like, you know, everybody else. <laughs> Adam and Eve, I mean, the first page of the Bible, basically, they had a choice to obey or not. Joshua is always saying, choose today. You know, me and my family, it's life or death, blessing or curse. Choose if you're going to serve the God of the Amorites. And, you know, Adam and Eve specifically as individuals also had the choice. And that's right at the very beginning. But it's, it's, it is definitely a cohesion of the two. I mean, it's not absolutely one thing, but... Like Arie says, he does know it's the, the predisposition of the, you know, Yetzer Hara or the Yetzer Hatov. I mean, the predestination, uh, pre the, whatever the um, predisposition, excuse me, like of Cain and Abel, of uh, so many other. Um, yeah. We also need to bear in mind where we started, the point we started from. We were talking about Paul and then by extension, we talked about Jeremiah. This pre-knowledge in the womb and this pre-calling was to a apostleship and prophecyship to the nations. That is not the universal call to everyone. These are specific callings for, by God for special individuals. Yeah, that's, that's true, Ari. i got to write that down to put it in the notes. That's, right. that's true. 
Because remember, like Jesus was alive with his apostles, yes, his disciples, for another 40 days. What could he have easily have said to them? He could have said to Mark, you go to Egypt. Peter, you go to Rome. So in Paul, uh, Thomas, you're off to India. And India, you know, I don't want to go there. Oh, well, you're going to. You know, he could have done that. Right? But there was something about Paul where, where you're like, okay, this, this guy's Pacific. I need this. This guy will make it work. Right? And uh, which is an interesting thought, don't you think? Okay. Jesus could easily have said, because you're 40 days after the resurrection to do whatever he wants with his disciples. But we still need to call Paul. Okay. And that's, just, that's an interesting thought. Okay. So they have a, a, a Pacific pre-knowledge of an apostleship to the nations, Jeremiah and Paul. And, uh, and so his calling is by his grace. Okay? It's, it's part of his chesed. It's part of his loving kindness that God would like to do this because he loves the nations. Right, and not a, based on his ability then, right, Aaron? So it's not based on something innate. Oh, there was something. There was something about Paul that was different to the other dis- disciples. Would you not agree with that? Otherwise, I would then ask you, Sharon, why does he not? Jesus got 40 days with these guys. Why does he, he not call them and get them to do it? Right. So then, yeah, my answer would be that there's one difference between him and the other guys. God called him to the Gentiles. End of story. It's all God. It's not really. Yeah, but who is the, who's the, who's the guy that crosses the Rubicon at the start? What do you mean? Who's the guy that actually goes in to a Gentile's home and baptize a bunch of Gentiles first? Peter. Peter. Acts 10, remember? It was the, um, when we read that, it was, it was the, I think it was Aria, you actually said this. This is the crossing of the Rubicon, right? This is the point of no return. My gosh, we have walked in to a Gentile home and poured out the Holy Spirit on them and then turned around and said, well, we might as well baptize the guys. But subsequent to that, these same 12 apostles apparently fell down on the job. Jesus yes. had had conditioned had commissioned every one of them to go into all the world, and the most of them, as we find later in this book here, they're defined as the apostles to the circumcision. Yeah, God recruited and used uh, who He needed for the job that wasn't getting done. Yeah, and that's the thing is is God knew His heroes, and He He got Paul, and He had this um this special this special um appointing uh, a calling. And he gets called in his grace, his loving kindness. And he was pleased to reveal his to me. And so part of the apocalypse, part of the revelation is, of course, it has to be the the Messiah, the Son, in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. This is this calling to the nations. Is it danger in what you're saying? Because I understand what you I'm not arguing, but from another perspective, just hearing this, I'm concerned when you say these things because it sounds like, well, if I don't have this character disposition, this ability, God can't use me. And that's not true because the foolish things God uses, because God, we don't do, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I will proclaim nothing but Christ and him crucified. And in my infirmities and my weakness, that's when I'm strong. So it is nothing by our ability. And that's, I hear what you're saying, but I think there's a danger if you don't put the other perspective. It is God, and it's the power of God through us that enables us to do things. Yes. Amen. Yes. And that's in conjunction with that, we are all called, but we're not all hands or mouths. Or no, I get that. <laughs> but we and all have so, a prayer. 
right? And why are we not all hands or mouths or evangelists or ears is because we've got a particular bit of DNA, particular bit yeah. of skills and abilities and gifts that are given by the Spirit. And, yeah, gifts uh, by the Spirit, not our own innate DNA, right? Well, we're kind of using them both together. It's not like... A, a, well, it, it's given by God then too then. If it's a gift of the Spirit, it's not you. You got it from God. Yeah. You can't take any glory yourself, I'm saying. Exactly. No, I'm not trying to. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not saying you are. No, no, I'm not saying you are. No. You know what I'm trying to say? Okay. Ari, hey, somebody? <laughs> Anyone? Yeah. Uh, okay. Aaron, could it be that uh, Paul had unique abilities being raised in the, in the uh, uh, as a Pharisee, and that he was an organizer, and he had much better skills than the original 12 apostles, which were followers? And more simple men. Correct. That's actually, yes, a good point. That's right. A good point to note is Paul's background is he is steeped in 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 the traditions, and uh, some of the other Fisher guys not so much. And uh, and so what's also at play is of the very physical idea of education, language skills, ability to communicate. That's not to say that the Holy Spirit can't use a donkey to talk because he can. He just doesn't do it very often. Right? It's, 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 it's not that we just sort of sit around and wait for all the animals on the planet to start sprouting the gospel and we'll do nothing because that's actually not part of the plan. And, uh, and so we, we do have to look at who we are, what skills we have, what history we have, what studies we have. And... Uh, uh, and continue to pursue them, develop them, and nurture them. Um, when sending people out on the mission field, you don't just grab any Tom, Dick, and Harry and say, okay, we're going to lay hand on you, and away you go. You usually find people who have the calling. And why do they have the calling? Because God knows his heroes. Before I became a believer, my parents were Christians, uh, you know, were believers, and um, I hadn't appropriated my faith. And it was interesting that after uh, I became a believer, that the the abilities, humanly speaking, that I had, and um, some of the interests and hobbies or whatever the, that I had pursued, uh, the Lord used now in ministry. And and uh, so it's interesting how He takes the things that were from the world that we're using for the world, and now it's um, He's been using it for 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 His glory. So I, it's very amazing. Amen. And it's very interesting because I love Second Corinthians. He says, behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. So there is a favorable time. Okay. And this, this is Paul's favorable time. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he has a little, uh, yeah. It does not go well for him, but it is a favorable time. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> it might be his happy time, but it's definitely favorable. And so he, his, after his calling, it says he did not immediately consult with anyone. Right? That's his blanket statement to start. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem right? uh, to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. This is this bit of self-disclosure which we don't find anywhere else. And then returned again to Damascus. Now, if we read um, the actual account of his road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, this is not what we get. We, we, we don't get any of this sort of idea. Paul is, he meets the Lord, uh, he has the blinded bit, um, he then gets uh, Ananias to pray for him, 
He gets the Holy Spirit and he's baptized. Uh, and then um, he starts teaching and then he gets into all kinds of trouble. And then they uh, lower him on a wall in a basket. And then it says, and then he went to Jerusalem. Acts doesn't give you the time difference between Damascus and Jerusalem. This is brand new information for us in, in Paul's self-disclosure. He says, actually, I didn't, it, it didn't kind of work out that way. Okay? We had this Arabia adventure first. And not only that, it doesn't go Damascus, Arabia, Jerusalem. It's Damascus, Arabia, Damascus. Okay? We return back uh, to, to Damascus. Um, and we mentioned it at the start of our, of our study. What's the special place in, in Arabia? Mount Sinai. Where's Mount Sinai here, you ask? I don't know. It's in Arabia. <laughs> there you go. Um, from Paul's account of this to the Corinthians, he apparently had uh, King Aretas from the uh, Nabataeans in hot pursuit of him when he arrived in Damascus. Uh, is that right? Yes. Okay. It was Aretas who was trying to catch him in Damascus, and that's why they let him down in the basket. Damascus was right at the edge of the Nabataean uh, territory. Does anyone know who this King Aretas is that uh, Arya is talking about? No. Okay. Arya, you want to share? He's a Nabataean king. I don't know anything more about him. But okay. Nabataeans we know a little bit about. They were the Edomites at yeah. the time of the... Uh, late Second Temple period, and even afterwards. Think, think Petra. Some of us have probably been there. Actually, King Aratas, that's actually where his throne was. His throne was in Petra, okay? And he was a, he was a, a long king. Uh, quite, his rule of reign of the Nabataeans was quite long. It was like, uh, like 40 years, which is actually quite long for kings in those days. He is the father-in-law of Herod Antipas, okay? Which means that Herod Antipas divorced his daughter so he could marry, you know, and that got that whole ticked off John the Baptist bit. So uh, King, King Aratas initially was quite friendly to the, uh, the, king, the, the realm of Judah, but then because of Herod Antipas, he became not so friendly, okay, and, uh, and you end up, him actually gaining control of Damascus. He ended up um, uh, siding with the Roman Tiberius. There was a bit of a war, and somehow he ended up getting becoming control. So it just so happened that at the time of Paul, King Aratus is in control of Damascus and ends up that ends up with this, I'm, I'm out for you, we're going to get you, and uh, he, he climbs down a wall in a, in a, in a basket. Um, so he gains control of Damascus in, in approximately 37 and, and holds it only for, for a couple of years. Um, so that gives you a little bit of time period for that event, okay? 37 um, AD, uh, which is interesting. But, um, okay, so uh, get a little bit of background that we don't know a lot about. Like what is he doing in Arabia? So the text doesn't say. It only says a little bit. It said that he has, has had a revelation of, of Jesus. So what do you think he's doing in Arabia? Now, of course, everything we say is going to be uh, silent, but what do you think he's doing? Revelations from Christ, probably, eh? See, one of the things, yeah. Some people think he walked with Christ. Correct. Well, he's implying that he's definitely had the revelation of the Messiah. So same as, same as that... Um, 
you hear from some of our Arab brothers and sisters in the present day. Okay? Paul is, has probably had that experience himself. Okay? Certainly implies it. Okay? It doesn't say how he, did he get a job. doesn't say what he did. Um, obviously, he manages to tick off the king there, though, um, somehow. <laughs> doesn't say how, but uh, anyway. Verse 18. Then after three years, so you get a time period on this. Okay? He ha has been doing this for three years. He goes up to Jerusalem, finally. This is his uh, first visit, okay, which is what you see in Acts 9. Okay? And he visits Cephas, okay, which is um, Peter. This is, his, um, this is his Aramaic name. Is that right, guys? Uh, Aria? Aaron? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So this is the, the, the Greek of the Aramaic, uh, Kepha. And he remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James. And then he has the Lord's uh, brother the, the, to work out which one we're talking about. Uh, and then in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Okay, now, this is a, I don't know why it's put in brackets. Is there something different in the Greek, Ariane? No. No. This is very Israeli, though. We have to tell each other all the time that we're going to tell the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. <laughs> so help me God. It's like, yeah. There apparently is a good reason why we have to assure each other that we're going to tell the truth this time. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So there... there it could be that um, that part of the um, uh, accusation or that Paul isn't a real apostle stems also from this. He says, listen, I'm telling you the truth, okay? Um, I, I, the first time I met, met uh, Cephas and James was in a visit to Jerusalem three years after I'd been receiving the revelation of the Messiah uh, and not before. And then I went, which is, and that time period is not what you see in Acts. Okay, you don't get that that time period. The sacred history doesn't often always tell time the way we think it tells time. It says when I went to see um, Peter and James, the Lord's brother. Is this linking to where where Paul says I'm going up to Jerusalem to make sure that I, I'm not preaching in vain and and I'm saying the things that tie up with what the apostles are saying. Is that uh, in Acts 9 or is that Acts 11? I think it's Acts 9. I can't remember. I believe it's here. Was it here? In Galatians, he says he went up to make sure he wasn't preaching in vain. Is that the same period or is that a different period? Is he referring back wherever that is? It, it, it gets very confusing. When you, when you read commentaries, they all try and put the dating game down. It, uh, it can get a little um, not as clear as we'd all like it. The, the book of Acts doesn't give us some of this information. In the book of Acts, it would seem like he has the vision, he's in Damascus, it's not that long, and then he's in Jerusalem. But Galatians says, no, there was a lot of time in between. Well, judging from his description of only two visits to Jerusalem here, and we have to accept that he's telling the truth here because he tells us, this first visit has to be the visit where Acts says he went and tried to join the uh, disciples, but they would have none of it because Which they were afraid of him. Nine, isn't it? Yes. So there's there's a bit of a different perspective here from the two points of view, which shouldn't yeah. surprise us too much, perhaps. But that has to be the same visit because Acts Luke says then the church sent him down to Tarsus to get rid of him, and then they had peace. 
<laughs> yes, which he doesn't disclose that bit of information here. Okay, uh, um, no, nobody's lying. They're just no. telling the truth from their own personal their own perspectives. That's right. So, yes, he says he doesn't see anybody, and he doesn't tell you the reason why he didn't see anybody because they didn't want to get seen. Okay, and so what he does, he says, and then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which of course is what's in Cilicia. Tarsus. Yeah, yeah, it lines up quite well, right? He said, yeah, the, in, in Acts chapter 9, they, they, they send him off to, uh, to Tarsus. And he actually, he says, it, he doesn't say Tarsus itself. He says the regions of uh, Syria and Cilicia. So he, it's, from his perspective, he did a bit of itinerating, okay? He wasn't just based in one place, okay? He moved around a little bit, which is the, that lower bit uh, near, it's above Antioch. And, um, and it's, it's on the coast, reasonably close to the coast. Okay. Antioch was at the top of Syria, so he would have gone through there. Assuming he was going by land, he went through Antioch on the no, way to no Tarsus. Correct. Both of, both of them were huge central cities. Yep. Both of them Hellenistic as well. Correct. And so Be Beautiful places to go to study uh, Greek philosophy and the Septuagint. Yeah, which is what he's going to quote and what he's also going to, to make use of. And he says, I was still unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. That's a nice little way of phrasing it. They didn't want to talk to me. Okay. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, as far as it, it's a perspective thing. It's a lie. It's a perspective. They were only hearing it said. He used to persecute us and is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. But what's good news, I guess, is they glorified God uh, because of that. Any comments on that final journey into uh, Tarsus because then after this three years we now get another 14 years so over 17 years all up and then we go back to Jerusalem for his second visit okay with with Barnabas okay and we can try and work out which one that is but that will be for uh, next week any other comments on this little bit of autobiography which we don't have in, in other in other parts of Paul Okay. He, he really needs to push that he has, he has seen the Messiah. The gospel that is, is preached is not something he is making up. He's received it. Okay. He's received it through a revelation, an apocalypse, not through some sort of prophetic dream. Um, this is something real for him, and it occurs in a very real place. It's not just walking through the streets of Damascus. It's in the land of Arabia. So we're Machutzla Aretz, just exactly where God gave the Torah in the first place. Okay? God reveals himself outside the land of Israel and then puts his people in the land of Israel as an inheritance. Paul himself also follows a very similar pattern where he goes to be on a mountain, he studies, and then he goes uh, north. He ends up going into uh, or his hometown when I read this, and I thought, why is he going there? Because prophets aren't known in their own hometowns, apparently. But, well, he was. So he had this special, special little uh, anointing. I'm just thinking, Aaron, of when he spent the time with the Lord teaching him or however it happened for those three years in Arabia. That dedicated time alone, just really seeking the Lord and the truth and understanding and wrestling it all out and trying to, to get to know the knowledge. Paul was the one that really got to understand several deep mysteries which were in the really 
you couldn't even find them easily in the Old Testament. And he really, and you know, that for the Gentiles to come to salvation, all these things that, you know, he declares several mysteries in his um, letters. So it's quite fascinating that he got these revelations and not the, the other 12 disciples who were taught by Jesus as well. Yes, even post-resurrection. Yes. It, it seems to me to be a case of having gone so deeply in it and been so deeply entrenched and enmeshed in it, he got to a position that only he could really reach the true despair that that system takes people into. There's no end to it. Mm. Interesting. And maybe to put you guys too part of like Ephesians there, you know, again, even just a, a, like a co-reference here with what we're reading, but you know, that, so I, for I, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. So again, it's God making the revelation known to him versus his fitness for it or whatever, like he was just chosen for this job kind of thing, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, like you said, Vida, as it has now been revealed by the, the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his da-da-da-da. So just a, another cross-reference for that concept for sure. And I love it now because when, when I read a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of these things, I can see it in the Old Testament, the, the revelation mm. to the – and mm. I'm reading and I'm saying, but can't the Jewish people see how – the God is actually going to give to the Gentiles this revelation of who he is. And it's just, it's you know, because in hindsight, obviously with the Holy Spirit now, you can see these truths and these, these I call them shadow types, or these pictures of Christ as you read in the Old Testament. And they just come alive. When I read, I love reading the Old Testament now because it just, you just see Christ yes. in this and, and the Messiah yeah. and the Messiah and the Messiah. And it's just, yeah. it, it just, it's so fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely fantastic. It is a, it is a real joy. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I was talking to Andrew and also he's talking to um, some family members, my sister and my husband, and, and it's just delving into the Bible at the depth of it. And we, you know, you just, I, I'm just the tip of the iceberg, but it's just, it's so delicious. Yeah. And, and I was, Andrew and I were talking, uh, just mainstream, you know, mainstream, even Mordecai had said, oh, you know, when I go to Germany, they just, people don't want to, it's just, they don't want to understand or they don't, but it's just like when you have the the depth of it or start, you know, you start to that, the, 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 like the, the mm. you know, the, the scales come off and you start diving deeper and people would love it if they knew it. I mean, of course there's a, you've got sin nature and everything, but, and, and that's what, Many times, you know, we've we've got that the evil and and that doesn't want people to come to 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 not the knowledge of it. We've got, of course, the hedonism because you think it's going to take away your freedom, where it actually gives you so much more. But amazing, and how it's just one biblical narrative. It's all like woven together. Yeah, yes. Beautiful. It's like a tapestry, and it's just. It's just amazing. It's beautiful. And you just, we, we want to be, you know, studying the whole time. Of course, practicing it is the hardest, but it's just, uh, you know, you, how your eyes just like the road to Damascus, like Emmaus, and how it's just boom, you know, it just burned in their hearts. And I just feel like the burning, it's just um, amazing when you see it all coming together. It's beautiful. I, yeah, Vita, same thing. It's just, it's amazing. Amen. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, we will. Join you all again next week.
God willing, uh, where we will look at uh, Paul's second journey to Jerusalem, uh, where they finally do accept him, and then uh, how he turns around and has a, a tip with some of the apostles who probably wish he'd never showed up in the first place. But there you go. Chapter 2 is what we will study on next week. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.